Welcome to Made for Profit, a podcast where we talk business in the shop and help you monetize as a maker. Each week we cover business topics to help you grow your full-time business or your side hustle. We'll also bring you interviews from a variety of people winning in their space to share valuable business insights and life lessons. I'm Brad Rodriguez, a full-time content creator running FixThisBuildThat.com, and my co-host John Malecki runs a full-time furniture company and his content site, JohnMalecki.com. We've been growing our successful businesses online, and we want to bring you into the conversation and help you grow along with us. Welcome to episode 65. It's time for another quarterly Q&A, and as you guys know that we talk about every week, we have a patron after show. We answer questions for our MFP patron tribe on any number of topics that they want to talk about, and they ask them over there in our Facebook group. So each quarter we pick a handful of these questions and we want to answer them to the broader MFP tribe as well. So if you do want to get into the tribe, we would love to have you. You can head over to patreon.com forward slash made for profit. And we did have a couple folks join this week. We'd like to thank Jeff Gruff and Paul McManus at Perry's Corner. So thank you so much to those guys. And we would love to have you as a patron as well. And you'll hear some awesome questions that they've been asking over there on the after show. But, John, I've been loving this because we've also had some other patrons. Uh, we do have the coaching tier, and that has really been fun. Yeah, I'm having a blast with that. I mean, we've got uh, we've got two right now, and it's been fantastic to see their growth kind of at different stages um, in their businesses, one brand new and one uh, just hitting their stride. I mean, it's been really cool to give our experiences and our uh, expertise, quote unquote, in certain aspects and, and see their success actually, you know, coming to fruition. Um, a really cool aspect, something that I've always enjoyed coaching coming from sports. So I, I love that intimacy and I love seeing that like direct result. Um, and I actually I love and I love how hard all of our patrons are putting uh, the the podcast to work. Like we see a ton oh, yeah. of our patrons in the um, in the especially in the Facebook group, the, our, our private Facebook group, um, telling us about their experiences, what they're implementing, what's working, getting the opinions of the crew. It's, it's just such a cool thing to see that community continue to grow and start to grow organically with the members inside of it. It is. It's awesome. We, we do have a uh, publicly open, even though it is uh, needs approval, we do have a publicly open Facebook group, which is also great. Uh, and so, you know, you don't have to be a patron to enjoy all the benefits of being an MFP listener and, and have there's a community over there as well, which is awesome. Uh, but if you want to go a little bit deeper, we do have the Patreon site as well and the Facebook group. And yeah, great, great set of folks over there that are really getting after it. And uh, I love all the questions. So some of those questions come in here to the quarterly Q&A. And so we did uh, pick out four questions for this quarter that we want to share with you. And we think they will resonate with uh, the larger audience and Let's get after them, John. Yeah, let's 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 just jump right into it. Um, so as as you guys have noticed, we like to try to keep uh, the topics not specifically towards just uh, content or business. Try to keep them broad, a little bit of both. Um, here we're going to start off with one that's more in the content realm. Um, and the question's coming from uh, our buddy Chad Pryor, and he was asking about a media kit and what it should contain if you're going to get into becoming a social media influencer. Um, and this question was it was it was somewhat broad, but we felt the value in it being that um, a bunch of content creators in our space uh, that we talk to on a personal basis that you and I happen to be friends with aren't even using media kits. Um, and we also saw that our patrons that want to get into the space aren't using them as well. So we thought we'd just give you guys a little bit of insight on how Brad and I use ours and uh, you know some do's and don'ts kind of thing. So 
First off, to get started, what a media kit is, is essentially a hub or a portfolio of um, your content platforms and a little bit about you. Um, it's a it's presented nicely and, and you make it all pretty in order to send something that's easily consumable to a brand or a potential sponsor or partner. Um, and, and you're putting it all in one place so they don't have to jump around the internet looking for your numbers on your social media platforms and trying to find your bio right. and where you're from and all that stuff. Yeah. So it's kind of like a resume. It's, yeah. like, it's like a social media influencer's resume, right? Or, or sales sheet or something, if you want to call it like that. Yep. So it's a it's a pretty resume <laughs> mm-hmm. and it's digital, So which is cool. So with that, you want to be uh, keep it similar to an actual resume in that you want to start out with a short biography. Um, you want to make you want to make it easily consumable, but you don't want to get too deep that it takes up a lot of square footage on the actual media kit itself. Um, so I typically uh, suggest to keep it nice and concise um, and make it about the aspects of you that are unique. Um, you know, make it the things that jump out or jump off the page, sort of like your elevator pitch. Um, what would get the attention of this brand immediately? Um, and then that that way you can start a conversation to. Uh, tell your longer story over the phone or perhaps in person kind of thing. Um, so you want to start out with that short little biography. And <laughs> sorry, Brad was, <laughs> was transition mesmerized with I my words. Something there. in your eye, you know, like going up. I was like, Oh man, he's got something in his eye. <laughs> so yeah, we want to start off with, uh, with that, which, uh, and what I like to do is actually Two things. So especially, it depends upon uh, what kind of content creator you are. But uh, if you are, so like for Fix This, Build That, um, I, I have two uh, intros kind of. I say, you know, about Brad. So, and, and as I grow the team, that'll kind of change. But uh, so I, I talk about myself and, you know, what my background is, you know, how long I've been woodworking, you know, whatever uh, areas of, of expertise, like you said, John, and then I talk about the website. So it's like, hey, here's the website, and here's who's behind the website. So it kind of gives you uh, that dual pronged approach. Uh, if you are if you are more of um, an individual, you know, woodworker about you know making the projects, and and kind of you are one and the same as the business, uh, then you know maybe that's just one paragraph. But yeah, if you if you have more of a branded thing going on, uh, you know, tell a bit of a story. So you know, hey, I got I got three kids. Uh, we live in Nashville and, you know, here's what we do. Fix this, build that. We do woodworking and DIY projects, plans and tools. And, you know, then kind of a few more sentences there. So, yeah, I think that that should be, you know, maybe the top uh, the top quarter of of the page. And and what we're talking here. So a, a good media kit, in my opinion, um, should be able to be conveyed in one page. And some people also will have in the um, uh, the sales page. So the actual um, pricing guide or price sheet. And that could be a second page. So that first page would really be all about you. So yeah, going on that. And then from there, then you can kind of kick into, again, depending upon uh, what you're trying to convey and what platforms you're on. If you have a lot of platforms, uh, so if you're on YouTube, Instagram, Facebook, Pinterest, you get a blog, you got an email newsletter, you know, th- these are all numbers that you can communicate to, um, to any potential sponsor or any potential partner. And so then, you know, the more of those you have, then you're probably going to want to have another line somewhere where it kind of groups them together uh, or you show off your your most valuable ones. Right. So if you've got 50,000 uh, followers on Instagram uh, and 120 on Pinterest, you're probably going to leave the Pinterest off. Right. You're going to focus on, uh, you know, put your best foot forward, obviously, uh, and 
and more importantly, you're just not going to add any value to that person by giving them Pinterest, right? All, even if all 120 people see that, it's, it's not as much of a sales thing. So uh, if, you're, if you're new, if you're only Instagrammer, which I know a lot of our folks are, uh, if you're only on Instagram, you know, maybe you just really go into detail about more of, you know, what are your engagement rates on Instagram? So for me, I'm, I'm typically just hitting my top level numbers for Instagram uh, and maybe impressions per month. And so maybe if you're just Instagram, but maybe you go in your average likes, your average comments and like, you know, hit some really juicy numbers. Uh, engagement rate is is a big one because that's something that uh, actually brands value more than actual total follower count because you could have, uh, you know, there is a count I follow that has two and a half million subs and they've had two and a half million followers for ever since I followed them. So I don't know how they got there. Uh, that's been over a couple of years. And the engagement rate is extremely low. So they might get the same level of engagement that somebody that has 100,000 gets. So that's a really important metric. Yep. Um, and I think flowing right into that is impressions as well. Impressions is kind of a, uh, it's a way to convey the uh, the amount of exposure that your content's getting as well as growth potential. Um, so if you know, you put a, if you're putting content out there consistently and your impressions are growing, um, that's something that if you don't have a ton of channels that you might want to convey. Um, and it's cool now because with the analytics on Instagram for uh, the large for accounts, it's over 10,000. still, I believe. Right. Um, yeah. You can you can show that, you know, you are whatever your weekly growth is. Um, and especially if you're using Iconosquare, which is something Brad and I have spoke about in the past. Um, it's a great tool to convey uh, a broad array of data and statistics. Um, so you want to focus on your top level stuff. Uh, I love that. Um, and I keep, I, I also like to add a photograph of yourself. So what happens with a lot of brands is that like, for instance, um, Brad on, uh, fix this, build that has used his logo as his, um, avatar on Instagram since the account began. So, you know, you want to put a picture of yourself on there so people can see who you are and what you do. And you also want to have your brand logo as well, if that's something that coincides yep. with what you're doing. So you make want to make sure you're hitting um, to go back your uh, a photo of yourself, your brand logo, a short biography, um, your website or whatever address that is, as well as like your top two or three platforms. And in those, you want to convey your uh, most important statistics, uh, follower count, sub count, uh, impressions, and uh, uh, sorry, what was the one you said, Brad? Engagement. Engagement. Sorry. Um, yeah. So those are those are good things to uh, paint a picture for these brands. Um, and then, you know, if you have anything that might be if, if you're feeling like there's some things left out, you can dive a little deeper. I also like to, I used to show uh, growth over certain periods of time um, when my stats weren't as high. And, and then that just gives the brand a, a little bit more information on the size of your channel at the, at this moment and potential size of it down the line. Yeah. Um, if you're, if you're not, you know, a, a larger, if you don't have a lot of large accounts. Yeah. Yeah. Tra show trajectory. So it's like, Hey, I'm, you know, I've, I've got, 15,000, which is awesome, but you know, it, it, that it was 2000 three months ago. Right. So like it's growing fast, uh, which is great. Uh, also another area that I like to hit on and, and as you grow, you can get this is, um, brands you've worked with in the past. So showing, you know, it's almost like, and, and some people even put testimonials on there. So, uh, I, I don't put testimonials directly on the media kit, um, but I will pass those on, uh, if it's applicable. 
But, uh, you know, so I'll have it on there. I have it on mine. Um, and obviously, again, you know, if you have some companies that you've worked with that you're like super proud of and or that are like really big companies, then that, you know, that works uh, awesome as well. So um, put it on there. And as you grow, you know, as you get two or three or four under your belt, then you can start adding that in. Uh, you know, I wouldn't suggest if you've only worked with one brand and it was like your local hardware store, you know, it's probably not gonna, probably not going to carry a lot of weight. So, uh, wait till you've got a few of them under your belt and, and put them in there. Um, because that's what other brands that they like to see. It's the same thing we've talked about in the past social proof. Uh, and that's a form of social proof. Uh, it's almost like business proof, right? So they're like, oh, well, this guy's working with Home Depot and Rigid and Maytag and, I, I guess he probably knows what he's doing, right? So that's just another way to quickly convey without saying much. And, uh, and what I do and what a lot of people do is I'll just say, um, like I have like, you know, past and current partners and then uh, have like their logos there. So I don't like go into detail about what I did with them. I just have a little logo that just shows that, uh, and also it's also a nice, you know, little nod to some of my my awesome uh, sponsors and supporters. And, and, and I like to have that on there. Um, so yeah, that's another great thing. Uh, and and just kind of wrapping it up, I think the uh, the other thing to do is is just go out there and look. So it, one thing I always tell people to go look at, because I know um, I've gone there before, is uh, Etsy. So if you go to Etsy and search for Media Kit or Influencer Media Kit or something like that, uh, they actually have them for sale. So, you know, we haven't really talked about format. The idea here is that you want this to look less like a resume being, you know, black and white bulleted list and more like a, you know, graphic designers like press Kit, right. So you want it to, to be flashy and sexy. Like, you know, you just want, you want it to show, you want it to show your brand. And if you go in there, there's some really nice ones that are out there. You can purchase them uh, or you can, you know, get ideas and say, Oh, I like, I like how that's formatted and um, you know, do your own thing. If you've got the chops to do it either in, and people do them in all kinds of different things. Illustrator. Where do we do our one for MFP, John? We did it in Canva. Canva. So, yeah. So I found Canva. Uh, I know a lot of heavy Pinteresters use Canva as well. But uh, Canva is a really cool tool. It's essentially like a uh, modified Illustrator. And it gives you a lot of options for dragging and dropping. And you can really make something pretty. Um, we did our MFP media kit with a template from Canva and it actually turned out fantastic. It's actually, I like it more than mine and yours, like that, we, <laughs> that, that we've put in it. We probably got it done in an, in an hour and we've, uh -huh. I know both of us have put countless hours into our personal media kits. Um, and there's something you always want to update too. So one last thing you want to make sure you have on your media kit is the date in which it was last modified. Um, yes. It's something that's easy to forget, but just throw it at the bottom there with a little asterisk date last modified, you know, September, 2018. That way, um, brands know that you're keeping up to date and that you actually care about this kind of stuff. Um, so flowing in, uh, I want to talk a little bit about tactically how to use a media kit before we wrap this topic up. Um, suggestion just being that don't just dump a media kit on a brand. Um, initially just try to segue the conversation to become something a little bit personal before you get into the media kit. Um, we talk about this a little bit with, uh, I think, with Johnny Brook in, in our episode and our interview with him. Um, if you want to check that episode out. Um, and, and there's a bunch of different ways to do it. Having a media kit ready to rock and roll is always great. Um, 
I typically of personally avoid sending my media kit in an initial introduction email just because I would like to get a response first before I gauge what type of relationship that brand's looking for. Um, now, granted, I may be in a little bit of a different position based on the scale of my business than most people. So um, if you think that your media kit's you know, going to be extremely impressive off the bat, you maybe want to send that. But you, I'm, I'm going to suggest to weigh the relationship first before you jump to the gun with the media kit, because uh, as Brad said earlier, a lot of us that have media kits also have our price sheet that goes along with it. Um, and when you start throwing numbers out there up, up front, you can leave yourself in situations where one, you are either way over what they're looking for, or two, you're way under what they're looking for. Um, and if you let them kind of lead the conversation in that route, you know, you can typically get things, uh, you get a feel for it first, and then maybe, you know, change your rates or adjust them to what you think the partnership might be. Um, and not just, you know, immediately, um, you know, throw out all of your, you know, all your eggs into the basket and, and hope for the best. Um, but it, that's not the only way to do it. You know, I would suggest learning what feels best for you. That's just how I do it. Um, I know Brad's a little bit different in that, too. Uh, and then there's lots of ways to go about it. But, um, yeah, yeah, definitely don't no. just dump it immediately. I love that. I, I don't either. Uh, and, and honestly, I don't ever send mine out unless they ask for it. Yeah. Like I because. Well, I think it's a little I, different I, I'm, I'm now. With you. It looks like think about it the same thing. Be. So it it is, and and I think if you relate it back to the resume thing, that I mean, that's basically like going up and shaking somebody's hand and stuffing a resume in their face. Yeah. You know, it's like <laughs> like that's 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 not what you want to do. You want to you know form a personal relationship with that person, like anything. You know, it's like don't you know make it about at least like hey. How you doing? I'm Brad. You know, hey, where are you from? In front of you, like whatever. You know, like like what you would do in person. You would try to get to know somebody first. Um, even if your agenda is to like your full agenda is just to get to work with that company, which more than likely it is. I mean, it, it's still always better to form that relationship because uh, that the whole um, if you make it more transactional, it's going to be more transactional. If you make it more relationship driven it's going to be richer and you're going to better understand what they want and need and better understand if it's a good fit for you. Right. It might not even be a great fit. So, uh, I, I love that advice as well, John. I, I like I said, and, and that's where actually we've gotten a lot of those questions is that people are like, Hey, um, they just asked me for a media kit. Like, what is that? Mm -hmm. <laughs> so that's how it typically goes. It's not, this is not something that we would, uh, advocate first foot forward. Uh, this is like, Hey, if, if they ask for it, if they never ask for it, I mean, a lot of these people, they know they, they're researching you on Instagram. They see you're popping up and they just want to work with you. Uh, and so that's, you know, if they're not asking for it, like, don't throw it in their face. Um, I, that, that's my personal approach. I never give a media kit unless I'm asked for it. I mean, I could think of in the last five to 10 new brands I've done, I haven't sent any of them a media kit. Now, yeah. I mean, I guess that, that's obviously once you get a larger size, you they don't know, you don't need it to because you know, you kind of get known in the space and, and that kind of thing. Um, and especially if they're coming after you, they're not going to, typically they're not going to ask you for a media kit. Uh, if they're already coming after you, it would be more like, Hey, yeah, send me some more information. Um, if you've talked to them and then they want to know more of the details behind, you know, your engagement, and those things. And, and maybe they've just not done, uh, maybe they don't know you as much. Yeah. Not, I think that's awesome insight there. So um, short little snippet there on the media kit. Uh, great question from Chad. Really loved that, uh, that the similarities in our answers in the after show too. It got a little, little juicier here. Um, so rolling into our next question is coming from our buddy, Jacob Elliott. And this one was really interesting. Um, and is why we picked it here. Um, 
So Jacob's been building out his new shop and um, in the new house he just purchased. And it's been a slow process for him to get content based around his typical type of content style. Um, right now, the shop, when he asked the question, was in the drywall stage. And he was wondering how he could keep his Instagram growing without reposting what seems like the same type of content over and over and over again. Um, and what we loved about this question was the fact that it what happens, we get it so often. Um, it may not be drywall particularly, but um, a lot of a lot of listeners and a lot of uh, questions that we get pertaining to Instagram come along those lines of, you know, I feel like I'm posting redundant concepts. You know, my, my content's just not um, entertaining. Um, and we thought this was a great opportunity to give you guys some tips and insights. Um, and, you know, the first thing that I'm going to suggest here is uh, when you're in this type of situation and you feel like personally that your content is stale or um, that is somewhat boring, um, take a step back and, and look at the process. Look at what's going into the process and try to uh, pull out a situation in which you're able to add value to your audience in whatever way it might be. Um, if your audience is a bunch of woodworkers and you're doing drywalling, for instance, uh, to talk about why you want, might want to add some extra um, studding to the wall in a certain situation because you have a plan to add French cleating for you know something that is going to pertain to your wood shop down the line. Um, you know, go into a situation where you can show off some expertise or some tips and tricks. Um, ironically, uh, as of today, as we sit here on the 18th and record this, uh, our friend George Von Driska is up at. Um, and of all trades workshop, and he's doing some drywalling, unbelievable woodworker, right? And he's showing tips on what he, what's going on in there, um, which I found really cool. And that just comes from uh, you know his his expertise over time. But there's still a lot of value for an audience member like myself who doesn't have that expertise in drywall. So if you know something that could possibly help your followers, you know, think of those situations, um, and those could be great opportunities to. Uh, provide content to your your following and give them something that may be different, but is still going to be valuable. And I, I mean, just off the top of my head, you know, uh, instances when you're using uh, certain knives for cutting, uh, do you want to use a router and cut it on the wall or cut it on the ground first? Um, you know, dimpler tips for actually using what type of drywall fasteners you're using, um, your mudding, uh, your joints techniques, like there's all kinds of stuff you can get into yeah. with that, that provides value because all of us have shops, right? All of us are going to at some point need to put up a wall or want to put up a wall. And those little things can add value to the audience as well. So thought that was a good opportunity to think on, you know, focusing on the process there and what you could do to add value to your audience that exists already with something that might seem a little bit mundane. Yeah. And the the flip side of that is also engaging your community of, of you know, peers as well. So like if you're if you're a woodworker uh, and you're posting a lot of woodworking, uh, you know, process shots and, and beauty shots and all those things that a woodworker would post, uh, you know, you very well may have some folks in your audience that are actual drywallers for their day job, right? And they just like watching woodworking and they enjoy what you do. So, and it's a great, or all the other folks like John mentioned who have done home repair and drywall work like John and I have, have both done, and I'm sure many of you have as well is it's a great opportunity to reach out and ask a question as well. Like, hey, I'm, I'm putting this up. Uh, you know, what do you guys prefer? Do you, 
do you really think I should go with the, uh, you know, the mold resistant green drywall in the, in the garage or just go with the standard? You know, what, uh, what are your experiences? Uh, what's, what do you find is the best, the best knife for cutting drywall? You know, do you like the hook, the hook nose or the regular straight? I mean, there's just like so many different things uh, out there that you can also engage. Like if you have genuine questions about it, that's a, a great opportunity because uh, and I, I actually put one out yesterday and, um, oh man, people, people jumped down my throat on this one. This was, it was kind of funny. I was like, I, I had a, uh, I was, I'm doing some drywall and I had some primer and I was like mixing it in the one gallon can and I've, I couldn't find like my, I had this old, this old one, uh, that was like a paint stir, you know, that you put on the stick. And, uh, so I was, I needed to stir it up because it had been sitting for like six months. Right. So like all the solids were at the bottom and it's primer. Right. So that stuff gets real heavy. And it's, it's just not as easy to stir as regular stuff. And so I used this huge, this huge stir with it and it was wasting a lot of paint. And so I was just like throwing it out there to ask folks like, Hey, what, what's your favorite way to mix, um, to mix paint? And <laughs> I got a lot of, I, I'm just going to take, you know, always assume positive intent. I'm going to just assume I got a lot of jokesters out there. They're like, like, dude, just use a stirring stick. And I'm like, <laughs> I'm like, Thank you. Like I did not add the extra insight that this was six months old and all the solids were at the bottom and I could have used a stick and it would have taken me a half hour to get it the right consistency. But yeah, so many people are just like, why don't you just shake it? Uh, why don't you use a stick? I was like, I was like, man, like what? The? But <laughs> you know, they're, they're seeing that and they're giving their input like, Hey, here's what works for me. Um, and maybe that was just uh, the mood I was in and the way I was reading it. But yeah, I, I felt like People just thought I was the biggest idiot. Like, what do you mean? How do you stir paint, dude? Like, just use a freaking stirring stick. <laughs> <laughs> so you might get some of those responses, but at the same time, you know, I think people, you know, there were a lot of people that wanted to share their expertise on uh, how to stir paint and uh, that, you know, let me know that I had no idea what I was doing. Uh, so that's a great opportunity to engage the audience. Yeah. And I think it's um, also a good opportunity, like for and for you, for instance, I wouldn't even have ever thought to use my drill um, for stirring paint that's been sitting. Like I'm the guy that does grab the stirring stick immediately and stands there for 20 minutes. <laughs> and I mean, like, especially like what you, a, you keep pulling the stick right? out. It just got that glob, glob on the end and you're like, Ugh. yeah. And so like, I mean, so you can see how something that might seem like dumb or not pertinent to your typical content could easily become something pretty cool. And that kind of stuff also leads into like, how like <laughs> this weird world of like trendy topics that's also going on in uh, the Instagram space specifically with like the goo and the slime and the oozing and the satisfying, satisfying like videos. You know, like like <laughs> I'm not going to lie. I'm not going to lie. I let that paint drip off there for a reason. <laughs> I was like, this looks really cool. I need to Instagram this. And I this is and it, like because it was so the head that I was using was so big. I was like, this is so stupid. Like why? I was like, Hey, that's This is exact. Actually, I didn't even think about this, how it fit into that question. So it's really funny uh, that we're answering this one this way, but yeah. So it was like kind of a cool thing. And same thing with drywall. Right. I mean, there's like, yeah. Uh, you know, when you're putting mud on, uh, man, I was watching this dude. I don't even know what it is, but it came up my Explorer feed and he is like, he's like a drywaller. It's, it's, it was not drywall nation. I don't think, but, um, he, he just like took the mud out of the pan and then was just doing these like waves with it and stuff. And like, and just like, he was just an artist, like on the Hawk, you know, the Hawk was like the wooden handle on the big aluminum, you know, 13 by 13 square or whatever it is. And he was just like, just handling the drywall mud, like not leaving a single extra drop as he like spread this, you know, 
16 ounces worth of mud around there and just kind of doing tricks with it. And then like, you know, was spinning the the drywall hawk like on his mudding blade. And, you know, he was just like having fun with it because I'm sure this dude does drywall 12 hours a day. And uh, so there's all these little tips and tricks and, and just like cool little things that, uh, yeah, he's drywalling, but he's having fun with it. And he's, you know, making it look fun and, and kind of doing a, a like a satisfying video type thing when he was like kind of laying down waves of this drywall mud and it looked like this really cool texture. And then he's just scrapes it up and just, you know, does something else. Yeah. And I think that's an excellent example of how you should be looking at things that are because they're a little different from what you normally do. Like how are the experts making it cool? Because there's, I guarantee whatever you're doing, there's going to be an account out there that somebody, uh, that, that, excuse me, there's a, an audience for that somebody's executing on really well. And that could be from talking about, you know, the slope in your garage floor to the drywall mud that you're using to texturing a ceiling or installing a fan, like whatever it might be. If you feel like that there's an opportunity to educate, I guarantee there's a niche that's looking for education in it, too. So go out and research or, or try to dive into one of those content rabbit holes where the the pros or the experts are, you know, that's what they're doing all the time. And give yourself an opportunity to make some content around that or just get your brain flowing on how you can turn this content into something that's a little bit cooler. I mean, for I see I see a really cool like drywalling specifically a video on just consistency of your mud and then like mix it up, you know, flop it to cut, flopping it down, having it be too firm, then doing the same thing too wet and then same thing. Perfect. And just like a 20 second little clip there could be a cool little piece of content Uh, That gives you something that to you, you may never have thought would be engaging, but to other people, they might find it satisfying or or educational or whatever it might be. Um, So, you know, the the basics of this question are to go back and and kind of look at the process and look what's going into it and break it down a little bit more um, into what you think may not seem typical um, to your, your existing content, but what another audience might find to be cool or interesting and then use that to your advantage. Um, use that to become interesting and educational and provide value. Um, you know, there's, there's a reason there's accounts for things like drywall because people dig it. They like it. It's interesting. It's educate. You know, there's a lot of us doing it on our own. Um, and you could learn a ton from it. So go find those kind of accounts and then also be sure to think about what's like trendy and cool right now. I mean, (laughs) drywall is a, a great opportunity to get into that, ooey gooey satisfying kind of world and you know and and, and you might have something jump off i i remember what was it? it was probably like a year ago brad you did your uh your 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 uh peeling off the glue video. oh the glue oh and gosh like, yeah that was like 18 months ago i mean like least. what a mundane process <laughs> but it it ended up being a really really cool viral piece of content for your instagram yeah and like you just turn never know and you never yeah, know. Yeah, and you never know which ones are going to do that. And so, and, and, so uh, you know, we're, we're throwing that out there. I, I think we would we would definitely advocate to, you know, don't try to turn your channel into the slime channel or anything. But you know, like throw some fun ones in there. Yeah. Uh, but above above all else, um, this is this is the story. This is your story, Jacob, and and whatever everybody else is going through. Uh, even though it's not part of this woodworking, is I think that's one of the other things that I talked about in the after show is that. Uh, weave it, even if you're not doing any of this cool stuff, like just weave it into pictures of your shop and talk about how excited you are that drywall is going up because your shop is, and, and, you know, maybe you have a picture of a certain corner, like, man, I can't wait to get this done. 
Uh, here's here's where I'm going to lay out my workbench. You know, this is where the table saw is going to be. Uh, bring people along on the journey because uh, you think like, oh, hey, I'm I'm in this phase where I'm not getting a lot of my consistent work done. But it's also super exciting, dude. You're making a shop. Like everybody wants to make a new shop. I oh, mean, yeah. you, you know, we all followed April as she made her shop uh, and and just watched her go through that whole process. And none of that was her her consistent content that she had normally done beforehand. But you got to see the space transformed and you got to kind of go along on the ride with her. And it was fun to watch everything come together. So, you know, don't don't be afraid to to dive in and just kind of document and walk walk your audience through the process of how your business is growing and how you're going into a new space and and use that time to expand on your story and your business and and the next step in that process. Yeah. Some really good stuff there. It was a really good, interesting question, Jacob. So I really appreciate that one. Um, we're going to kind of jump to the other end of the spectrum now with a little bit more of the uh, product producing side of things. And our friend Josh Wilson asked um, our thoughts on paper contracts versus verbal agreements um, and how to set up a paper contract and what, what's the kind of the best ways and practices to go about that. Um, and this would seem like something pretty standard. Uh, obviously, you know, you want to get everything you can in writing. But with that comes the complexity of an interaction. Um, and I've been through this a lot. You know, my my business, if you go to my blog and read the, well, I think it's like 10 blogs I did on um, on the how I got to where I'm at three years ago when I wrote it, <laughs> a lot of my business came from referrals. And when you're in that world, you know, getting things down on paper between people, you know, is very uncomfortable. It's very different. Um, and it can seem like something that can deter a client um, from, you know, the closing or from actually working with you. Um, and so with that, you know, we thought this question had some, you know, pertinent topics to everyone that's trying to sell anything. Um, and, you know, in that, I wanted to give a little bit of my experience on why I think uh, paper contracts are always the way to go. And two examples specifically, first being uh, I did a, a massive kitchen project a little over a year ago um, and the client was uh, she was she was great. I mean, we got everything down on paper. I, I handed over my contract. Um, she signed it and, and we got the deposit down up front and things started rocking and rolling. Um, and as that started going, she started requiring a lot more of me than what was initially outlined in the contract. Um, and over the course of 10 months, as her, I was working in conjunction with the build out of her camp, um, what ended up happening was I was on site way more than we initially agreed upon. I was in um, the home. I was at meetings and I was doing renderings and there was just all kinds of list items and deliverables on my end that were never outlined in my initial contract. Um, but my initial contract also didn't address <laughs> any of those things uh, going down the line. So what I ran into there was like, oh, you know, I got everything on paper, like we're cool, but that piece of paper didn't actually outline everything. And it put me in a bind. Um, and so what ended up happening was I lost a ton of cash on that job just by, it was, it's 50 minutes away from my shop, just by driving back and forth to go over layout and go over things on site that I didn't outline specifically in our initial contract. And it, it came back to bite me. And that was because I let the relationship of like us kind of being acquaintances, fizzle into the business side of things and it ended up biting me pretty hard 
And in conjunction with that, I had another client who I was approached to because we were friends that we did a handshake deal. I actually waived a fee um, because the scale of the project was quite large. I ended up doing a ton of drawings and renderings for them. Um, and they ended up going in a completely different direction and we're not even friends or acquaintances anymore. So <laughs> none of that was on paper and I ended up losing a ton of cash on that. So like <laughs> lesson be learned, get it on paper and get as much detail as you can. And this is kind of where we went into um, in the after show question, um, Brad having a lot of experience in a like a strict corporate setting with contracts and stuff and me just essentially um, developing my own process over time. Um, but yeah. So advice being when you're getting into any type of relationship where there'll be a transaction of services or product, you 100% want to make sure you're getting terms on paper upfront and making sure that every detail that you can is outlined and taken care of ahead of time. Yeah. And there's some basics too, right? I mean, you, so at, at the minimum, you kind of want to get the W's, right? Who, what, when, where, how, I know how it doesn't start with W, but there's one in there. There's a, there's a W at the end. Uh, but right. So you need at least, you know, and how much, uh, and so you need some of those in there for sure. Like, I think we would recommend that even if you are doing kind of a quote unquote handshake type deal, uh, because you know, people love to have amnesia and, and not, it's <laughs> not, and not all of it is, uh, not all of it is like malicious either. Right. People just forget, like, you're like, Oh, I did we say 500? No, I do. I thought we said 750. Like, and it's like, and then that could be like an actual, like the two parties, like literally in their mind, think it was what it was and, and like what it was, uh, neither of them are going to understand. And then they're both going to be mad at each other because they're both thinking the other's trying to take advantage of them. Uh, and so having that down on paper is a great way to do it. And even in, and so I would highly suggest that. Uh, but even if you're not going to do contracts, at least have an email chain, right? I mean, just have something documented where you can go back. You you both were on the, the agreement. So you just having a phone conversation and writing down notes, uh, that is not going in front of the other party, right? So just because you have it written down and then they can say, well, I wrote down 500. Why well, I wrote down 750. Well, okay, like who's right? Uh, so having that email chain where both people see it, right? You're, there's a sender and a receiver. And if they see it on paper or in digitally, they'll go, wait a minute. That that's not, no, it wasn't. Did I say 500? I, if I did, I, I apologize. I meant 750 or, or vice versa. Uh, and then, but that would be at the minimum. And then, um, you know, I think where's John's going, especially in a, in a product oriented business, you've got to cover yourself and you've got to understand. And even if you, um, and you don't want to have a 15 page contract, right? Nobody does. Um, I get those from time to time when, uh, mm. you know, you, you work with a sponsor, like you, you know, immediately is there like, oh, we're going to have our legal department send over the contract. And like, before you open the contract, it's like 11 Ooh. pages, 15 <laughs> pages. And you're like, oh no, not one of these. And I know, like, I know all the clauses they're going to have in there. Right. Cause I, I, I've seen them, uh, so often now. And, and then there's others. So like, uh, even from, uh, just, sponsorship and, and branding, there's other brands that I work with that I, I honestly, I don't, I don't do contracts. I just do email. What do you need? Here's what I've got. Here's how much it's going to be. Okay, perfect. When are we going to deliver? What it's going to, what is it going to look like? Awesome. And, uh, you know, I'll do that if I feel comfortable with the brand and, uh, and yes, I am, you know, leaving myself open to risk, but the, the idea there is that, uh, you know, these, it, it's a little different than working with a, um, 
an end consumer because an end consumer, you know, more than likely if you're selling somebody a dining table, uh, you know, you're probably going to sell them that dining table and that's probably going to be it. They might refer you or whatever, but um, by and large, you're not going to have a ton of repeat customers on stuff like that versus a company like this, like, you know, and, and it doesn't matter. Like they don't care if you go tell your friends that they were bad business partners, right? That they, they're just like, oh yeah, I took that guy for 500 bucks, right? And, and then you never hear from him again, you never see from him again. Uh, when working with companies, it's a little different because it's like, if, if they, you know, if, if they screw me, then I'm going to go tell like, Hey, don't go work with company X because I had a horrible experience with them. So, you know, not that uh, you shouldn't get contracts with them, but you know, in my eyes, I'm like, yeah, okay. Like as long as we all understand each other, that's, that's the biggest thing. So the first piece is just to make sure that everybody's on the same page and that everything is laid out. The second piece is like what John's saying too, is like, uh, you know, just knowing all the details. And then when they start asking for things that weren't in the contract, you can go back to that piece of paper and say, Hey, we didn't document this. Like if you want to write up and that's, and that's probably where John should have gone, but you know, being that personal nature, right, John, I'm sure like that was totally uncomfortable. But if you find yourself in a situation with a client where something comes up, that's not covered in the contract, don't just acquiesce to whatever they're asking. Say like, Hey, that wasn't covered in the contract. Uh, we need to amend this, you know, where we need to do another contract for, the install, like I totally, you know, I, I totally missed out on that. Like we, we wrote the rate, but we didn't talk about how many trips it's going to be, what that's going to look like. If I'm going to be working with other subcontractors, what are the delays? Like all those things, uh, just because you have a contract doesn't mean that you can't amend that or write a new contract for a different piece that has come up. So don't let that, uh, you know, don't feel locked into a contract too, uh, as far as if new things come up, like you can always incorporate that, right? And you can, after the fact, and as again, as long as everybody agrees, I mean, you can nullify old contracts. You can say, hey, the, the situations have completely changed. This doesn't work for me anymore. Uh, but let's work together to figure something out. And that, that's the nice part of it. And, you know, if you're going to be a good business partner, then you need to be open to change and making sure that everybody's happy at the end. Yeah. And, and the other aspect of this uh, contract conversation that's going to pop up is the actual, like, feeling you have or the other individual has toward the concept of a contract themselves. You know, typically a contract makes things pretty cut and dry and very and much more professional. Um, and in that there's, you know, there's certain emotions that go along with it. You know, you, a lot of people like don't want to get into a contract. I know when we get sent contracts now to produce content, you know, you and I specifically dive into them and make sure that we are covered on every aspect of it. And it doesn't feel good when there's bad things in a contract, but that's not always the, the intent of the contract. So anyway, with that, people can be can preconceive a contract to be like that, to to think that you're going to try to sweep some stuff under the rug or, you know, pull something out from under their nose or whatever it might be and, and, and take advantage of the situation. And I understand that it's difficult when you're trying to, uh, you know, feel out a relationship with a client, um, whether to have that contract or not. But my advice that I'm going to give you is to always falter on the side of the contract. Um, I mean, it's difficult, but what what you'll run into is you get better at your business and you start working with more high-end clients is that the buyers that are good know that. And the ones that are really good are going to make you feel like you are their best friend in order to get absolutely every penny out of you that they possibly can. And that in that they understand how to massage their relationship with you to get those things. And that if you don't have it clearly outlined that you're only going to come on site a maximum of three times until you have to add another $150 to 
a uh, to an invoice for each time after that, they're going to they're going to have you on site every absolute possible question that they can get because it's convenient to them. So in that, make sure you're taking care of yourself. The clients that are not willing to sign contracts or that are not willing to handle a relationship professionally are typically the clients you don't want. And I'll say that again, a client who is going to give you pushback on anything that is written down or on paper is the kind of client that you don't want. And this is hard for people to understand. And this was hard for me to understand initially because what that does is it sets a clear line of expectations with whomever the transaction's happening with. And in the situations where someone doesn't want to do that, they probably were trying to get out of something or trying to just squeeze free labor or work out of you. And that's happened to me in the past. And it's upsetting because I live in a, Pittsburgh's a big, small city, quote unquote. So in that, you know, I'll be, I was at a Steeler game on Sunday and an individual came up to me, asked me about a job that I did all of the renderings and drawings for. And I didn't end up actually doing the labor because the client went behind my back and did it all with somebody else. But they thought it was me because the client then was still using my name because I have the credibility and an Instagram following and all of that. So you could see how things can get very, very gray. And in those situations, you just want to make sure you're taken care of. Now, do I have hard feelings? No, it's business. You know, it's what it is. That guy will never get a recommendation out of me and I'm not going to go bad mouth him. But in that, that stuff happens and you have to expect it. So always falter on the side of a contract and taking care of yourself in those situations. My suggestion will be to go into your process, outline specific items that you feel are important to your 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 design process, your fact finding process and your build process. And in those, see where other individuals input can uh, cost you more time and lay those out in your contract. So um, we talk about on the after show and I've talked about it before is the uh, pre-contract agreement in which I send a contract to anyone I'm doing a drawing for. They sign off on it and I deduct that contract um, amount from the final price. If that individual is not willing to sign an agreement up front for me to draw for them, then they're probably not going to buy the thing anyway, right? Um, especially when you're talking thousands of dollars compared to a couple hundred for a contract. So, um, you know, you want to make sure you're taking care of yourself up front. And what you'll do is you'll actually streamline your process, filter out the clients that you don't want, and actually start to make real money because your time is getting much more focused. And that's what we're looking for here is to make more money when you're in these situations. Absolutely. Great question. Great question, Josh. Yeah, good stuff there. So, Last question we want to dive into here is kind of um, it's kind of more of like an umbrella question that it was it caught us off guard a little bit. Right. And we answered this, uh, I'm going to say, like two weeks ago. Um, And it's it's funny because Brad and I never before this have had this conversation. Um, And so Bryce uh, Robel asked, uh, when how do you keep yourself motivated uh, when work is kicking your butt and things aren't going your way? And I find this question fascinating i could talk about this for hours i uh, as as you all know i am someone who is um you know always in the audiobooks and i'm always into trying to you know be the best that i can mentally and a lot of the um literature out there pertains to that kind of stuff right um and some people aren't into that some i come from sports where there's motivational quotes and signs and speeches and stuff all over the place so that's like kind of ingrained in my psyche and like who i am as a person um so I kind of tend to lean towards a lot of that type of content. And I've read and regurgitated lots of 
you know, self-motivation type uh, content as well as like, you know, the, uh, the the routine type of content. So this question, I, th- I find it to be very interesting because there's so many different ways to answer it, right? Um, and in that, you know, my personal process it happens to be very different than Brad's, um, which is <laughs> which was ironic when we answered this in the after show. Um, and, and, you know, for me, um, I take bumps and bruises like very differently than uh, I think a lot of people do. Um, and I just like <laughs> I just like bottle them up, uh, let them build up over time until I have like an extreme almost close <laughs> to meltdown. Um, and then I build myself back up off of that, which isn't healthy, which isn't good. Um, and I handled things like that for years going through my NFL, um, experience, you know, getting cut 13 times, um, you learn to mentally cope with quote unquote failure or difficult times of chasing a dream or going through a process. So for me, what I found in those situations was, uh, that when I felt like I was unmotivated or that I was being defeated by the situation was to, um, dive into what I could control on my own personally. And things you can control are, you know, your mindset. Um, you can't control time. You can't control other people's opinions. You can't control uh, a lot of outside factors, but you can control how you approach them. You can control your process personally. And in that, I really found that for me, when I feel like things are getting out of control and I feel like I'm taking a lot of losses, uh, is to really dive into my daily routine. And for me, that starts in the morning. Um, you know, specifically, I get up between six and six thirty each day, um, and a newer daily habit of mine has become um, taking a cold shower. So I'll jump into a cold shower for a minute to three minutes, kind of like <laughs> essentially jolt my morning into existence by, and that that helps me wake up. Um, and then from there, I hop into reading some sort of a book or a piece of content, something with like n- no outside stimulation for 15 to 30 minutes. Um, and I drink, you know, a, a large uh, glass of water with some of the supplements that I take during the day. Um, and I just get into this routine of things that I know every single day I can control. Um, and with those things, what happens is you, you gain mental, cl- in my experience, you gain mental clarity over your day. You start your day with a victory. And even when life seems to be punching you in the face, getting that morning routine rolling for me is me jabbing it right back instead of just taking beating after beating. What I know a lot of us do is wake up, grab a cup of coffee, put on a bunch of clothes and run right to work And that anxiety and that buildup and all of the uh, quote unquote problems that occur with it just roll right into the next day. And there's never a pause or a moment to get a win or to get some sort of mental clarity. And for me, that morning routine uh, is something that works really well. And, and I kind of adopted that from uh, Sean Van Dyke, who's got a ridiculous morning routine. I mean, dude's up at like 4.30. He's meditating, contrast shower, workout, like dude's a machine. But if you talk to him about it, I mean, it's it's really helped change his life over the past 18 months. Yeah, I, and and uh, I don't do any of that. Yeah. So, <laughs> <laughs> I'm I'm living the dad life over here. I remember in the after show, I actually went first and, you know, I was like, just, I was actually more talking about, you know, how do I keep motivated versus like, you know, the things in the kicking me in the butt. And I was like very tactical type stuff. Uh, and then, you know, of actually working the process and then John like rolled in this whole morning routine, self-motivation. And I was just like, yeah, I, I don't do that. <laughs> so, uh, yeah. So for all the rest of you humans out there uh, <laughs> that, are, that are like me, 
Uh, yeah, my morning routine consists of waking up, getting the kids uh, dressed and ready for, for school. Well, that that's actually a, a, a farce. Uh, I, I wake up now because uh, Susan is staying home, my wife, and uh, she, she does most of the brunt of that, which is fantastic uh, because I'm typically up late working on content or working on whatever. Uh, I have a horrible work life balance at the moment. I've just, I've just not made that transition. I'm just, I'm just working more and more and more. Uh, but in that, you know, how I keep motivated is, uh, I do like to, to try to get the small wins. So that's like one of the things, like if I'm just like, so two things, one, if I just like, don't feel like going out and doing something, um, I'll pick something that's like, like maybe one task or one process of that project and just do it. So maybe it's like, I don't know, maybe it's just like cutting the joinery, right? So it's like, all right, I'm just, I'm going to lay out the joinery and just like think about that as a task versus thinking about, I have to assemble this entire desk. Like, okay, well, how about I just cut all the joinery for the legs? Like, okay, yeah, that, like done, right? And uh, that, that's all one of, the, one of the hacks that I don't use, but I like the, the idea of it is like the, when you get going and you make a to-do list, like the very first thing that you say is make a to-do list is like your first item so that you get a small win. Like after you're done with the list, you check it off. Right. And the same type idea is like uh, just building momentum. And, and because that's I think a lot of times when um, when people are losing momentum, they don't want to do stuff is because it seems overwhelming. It seems either too long, too hard uh, or you don't know where to start. And so breaking it down into smaller chunks, that's always helped me and uh, get a small win. And even if it's not on the project. Right. So if you have if you've got a cut, you know, 92 mortise and tenons, and you're like, I do not want to do this. Uh, you know, maybe switch over. If you have something else on the docket that is a project you can knock out in an hour, uh, you know, it's like, oh, I, I've got a thing to, uh, I also have an order for a custom pin that I can turn on my lathe. Like, fire up the lathe, spend an hour over there doing that project, get it knocked out and done, and then you're like, okay, sweet. Now let's let's do this mortise and tenon. So, uh, it is about momentum. So kind of the same thing that John's saying, you know, you got to get off to a good start and get that momentum. Um, and then as far as, you know, when you're running into obstacles, uh, what I always fall back on is is just deadlines. And whether those are actual deadlines or they're artificial deadlines that I put on myself is um, if I'm running to an issue with something, uh, typically I'm doing that for a client almost always. And I just, I just look down the barrel of the gun at that deadline and say like, okay, like I know this is killing me, but like I have to have this done in two days. And I like, it doesn't matter how much I don't want to do this, how tired I am, how much this is, is really going to just shred at my nerves the whole time I'm doing it. Like I, I have to get it done. And so that's kind of what I, what I use is kind of the base of my motivation is like, I try my utmost and hardest to never let down somebody I've made a commitment to, whether that's personal, professional, whatever. Uh, and, and I just use that as my underlying driving force to get things done. And believe me, I've missed deadlines, right? But typically what that will look like is, Hey, um, I know I promised you this on the 20th. I'm running into issues. Uh, it looks like the 25th. Is that going to be okay with you? Right. And so, you know, going in and, and talking to them, but trying my utmost, uh, to, to get it done in time. And that's just, those are the two things that I use is really just taking those small wins and then using the actual deadline and, and um, you know, being able to stand with my commitments to help motivate me to get it done 
no matter what the situation is to, to kind of pound through it. Yeah, I think the accountability aspect of motivation is something that a lot of us overlook. Um, you know, one thing that uh, that I can relate to there is I, I get the same exact feeling, dude. Like when I have a deadline on me, I feel like if I let that human being down that I'm doing whatever task or project or whatever it might be for, if I let them down, that they're going to hate me forever and that I my life's over. And I don't know why I have such a like I, I put like the most massive uh, value on that person's opinion of that situation. But like in that you can really get yourself out of a drag or help yourself to push through something that might be difficult. Um, this bridge desk that I was just wrapping up, like Brad was watching me crumble to pieces but literally gr grind it out. Like I was grinding out, uh, you know, 16, 18 hour days on this project. And I was just getting my butt kicked all up and down in each which way that I could with this thing. Um, and in that, you know, my biggest internal struggle was letting down the client on a deadline. Um, and I would have conversations with Brad and other people I hold in, in high influence in regards to my life. And they'd be like, dude, just call the client and tell them you're going to be two days behind. Like, why are you working till midnight to put a project out there that you, it, that their house isn't even done for. And I'm like, I said, I'd have it done. Like, but in that <laughs> holding yourself accountable and feeling accountable towards someone else is a great way to get motivated. If you don't feel like you have those individuals in your life, or if you don't feel like that the situation provides that, a type of accountability, put that on somebody that's close to you, whether it's your spouse or your best friend or anybody that you know will hold you accountable to that. Um, and, you know, that's a, a piece of advice if you read any books on um, motivation or uh, leadership that that they'll advise you to do is to get an accountability partner, quote unquote, find somebody that will hold you accountable for certain tasks and things that you're supposed to do. Um, in that way, you feel obligated to perform for them and not just yourself, because when you're taking losses and things are getting difficult, it's easy to turn another cheek, get distracted, feel like you're getting things done, but they're not actually to the, to the important part of the task, you know, going off on a tangent and then just letting things mount and build up, you know, go find someone that can draw you back in that can, can bring you back to what's important and what's going on. Um, also take some time to self-reflect in that things are probably not as important as you feel they are in that situation that you're feeling like you're losing um, and that you can take a step back, take a deep breath, take a 30 minute break, recollect your thoughts, get rehydrated, have a little snack and go back and punch that project or situation in the face. Like I find myself doing that all the time where I'll be like, uh, for instance, I was doing um, half blind dovetails drawers for this last project and was having some issues with the um the the tolerances in the joinery and i wasn't liking it and i was just getting my butt kicked and i'm cutting joint after joint and nothing's working i took a break went back <laughs> did this crazy thing i read the manual and i'd made this little <laughs> adjustment but like i had to get that moment of clarity so take those situations for yourself like you have to remember that you are extremely important to whatever is happening in your life in that if you do not take the time to take care of yourself, the other things will also falter. So for me, that's a daily routine for Brad. It's staring down the barrel of a deadline, you know, take those moments to get yourself back into a clear state and then go forward with 
whatever might be difficult or whatever might be giving you uh, difficulty in those situations. And you'll see more times than not, you're going to be able to conquer that much easier when you're from a clear space instead of from somewhere that seems cluttered and overwhelmed. Yeah. And snacks. Wonderful advice. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> snacks and water. Snacks, yes. I get a lot of questions on almonds and diet Mountain Dew. I, the, uh, or, no, you know, snacks. Get and water. the diet like Dew out of here. My, the, <laughs> the elixir the, of life. <laughs> I get a lot of questions. I used to um, put it out there a lot more, but like I'll carry a gallon jug of water around with me and you'd be, you'll be incredibly surprised on how much better your body performs when you're hydrated compared to when you're not. Like if you're just sweating it out in the shop and you're not like reconsuming anything, if you take a break and just go drink two, three glasses of water, like your body, your body needs water in order to sustain life. It's an essentially a large electrical circuit and water is a conductor of electricity. So by hydrating yourself, you can double what you're capable of doing and you're not even changing anything in your life. You're just drinking water. Like, so little things like that, taking care of yourself, huge, huge wins (laughs) that you typically don't think about. And, uh, and you know, for me, those are, those are things coming from sports. Like coach will look at you, you walk off the field. They're like, you look like poop, go get a glass, go get a water, sit down. We'll look at the play. And you know, you like, you know, drink something, get out of your own head, go back on the field and you get a, you, you beat a guy who just smoked you on a, you know, spin move or something um, just because <laughs> you're hydrated and your eyeballs aren't twitching in your head anymore. <laughs> <laughs> I love it, man. Cool. Well, Hey guys, that is uh, our Q3 Q and a. And so again, we just like to to highlight some of the questions that we got from our patrons, if you do want to join the patron group, you can head over to patreon.com forward slash made for profit. And uh, we answer all the questions that we get in the after show. And then we pull select ones out here uh, to share with the broader audience. So if you're interested in doing that, go check it out. Yeah. And if you want to jump in on some of those after show questions, head on over to facebook.com forward slash groups forward slash made for profit tribe. Um, and that's where all this conversation's happening and where we pull these questions from. And also make sure you're following us on Instagram at Made for Profit, where you'll see a ton of engagement from the tribe as well. Lots of questions and interactions going on over there. And you get to keep up with our weekly episodes. Absolutely. Small correction. That is our uh, public group, yeah. not the patron group. Well, yeah. all the groups. Yes. I knew all, the, all the groups, all the things. Yes. All the so, yeah, all we, we do pull the after shows just from the patrons, not from the uh the open group there because we have so many from our patrons that uh we couldn't possibly answer all the ones from the the broader group as well fact uh fact so right now we're actually gonna go head over and uh give our patrons uh even more answers to their questions so we're gonna head over that after show john let's go knock it out let's crush it 